We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. Episode number 51 of Lion Legacy and Ross, we are talking about one of my favorite places in the world, Disney World. The mouse ears, the famous mouse ears. One of the professors that I had, I'll never forget this, used to always bring up Disney in his examples, right? And would just never said the word, the name Disney. He was always just say the mouse ears. And he would jump into his story and he would just say, you know how the mouse ears do it? And like, it's, you just knew what he was talking about. And so whenever I see Disney or talk about Disney, I always think the mouse ears. You got any favorite Disney memories to recall? Yeah. I mean, I have to go back into the cobwebs of my brain to think about when I was there as a kid. I would say more, more recently though, we took my kids, my wife and I took our kids to Disney in 2019 and just to be there and experience it's one thing to experience it yourself as a kid but when you bring your own kids there and you know like they had maybe seen some videos or maybe their friends had been there but when your own kids step foot in magic kingdom or hollywood studios or what have you and they see the architecture and the attractions and maybe they're into like a certain disney movie or whatever and they see like that in real life it's just there's nothing like it i would say just having my own kids there and, and having seeing the enjoyment on their face in disney world and that's a real experience. You, you can't put a price on that. I'm a big fan as well. I think I've gone at least 10 times, both as a kid, as an adult. I remember not liking Epcot as a kid. Oh, yeah. And but, now I love oh, Epcot. Epcot's the best, yeah. I think it's one of the best, the best parks out there. Also went for my parents' 40th anniversary. They took all of us mainly because... My nieces were young at the time. We went on the Disney cruise, yep. which is just a great experience, right? You know, going into it that it's going to be top of the top because Disney does everything to the top. Yeah, big fan. Always felt that the magic, the energy, the electricity when interacting with anything that has to do with Disney. And speaking of Disney, of course, yep. we had a great guest tonight who was a Imagineer. Yeah, we spoke with Bob Holland, who did not start his career at Disney. We're not going to tell you where, but you'll have to listen. But ended up working for Disney for 27 years as an architect involved in the design, Epcot, international Disney properties, cruise ships. We covered a lot of ground. Super, super impressive. Similar to Rachel DeSantis. You know, we're doubling down on theme parks here recently on Lion Legacy, but similar to to Rachel this episode with Bob and his long career with Disney we we kind of go under underneath the hood as I like to say of Disney right and how it's just this magical enterprise that we all know and love and uh, some of his experiences from many years ago and how what went into some of those big projects it's pretty cool I, I think we're lucky Jared in the fact that we found this gentleman who was there in the early days of Epcot yeah Really fascinating. Thanks again to Professor Katie O'Toole's podcasting class for helping find Bob. Special thanks to the student Matthew Rudisell as well. Great guest and really fascinating career. Jared, 
Grab your mouse ears. I'm going to grab my mouse ears. We're going to go have a magical conversation with Bob Holland. All right. Let's welcome Bob Holland, a 1973 graduate with honors in architecture. Bob spent 27 years as an Imagineer for the Walt Disney Company, working on some amazing projects. Epcot, Disneyland, Hong Kong, Paris, Tokyo, cruise ships, just to name a few. I'm sure you have some amazing stories, Bob. We're excited to have you online, Legacy. It's great to be here. Thank you for asking. Great to have you on, Bob. We're going to focus mainly on your time at Disney. But interestingly enough, you started your career working for the federal government designing hospitals. Tell us, early in your career, what did you learn during your time there? Yeah, I did. I had no no idea I would ever end up at Disney. It's, it wasn't even a goal of mine. I know there's some people who, I don't know, by the time they're in junior high school, that's their goal to work for Disney. And that certainly wasn't my case. To be honest, coming out of school in 73, actually it was 74 because I got a master's degree after was quite a bit of a recession and there weren't a lot of jobs. And I had my thesis at Penn State was a design of a hospital. And I guess the one thing I learned in six years plus of architecture school, I really was more of a planner, a manager, a functional layout than I was. Somebody was probably going to design something that was going to be in the next cover of architectural record or something. So the I started looking for hospital jobs, and I ended up with the Veterans Administration in Washington, D.C. And I did about two years, two and a half years there doing design work. And it was, you know, kind of right up my alley, what I did as a thesis. And I guess what I learned there was that, one, working in, in, in a large office, but two, I learned that there was an awful lot of things that I didn't know about construction. I was designing things, but I didn't know a lot about how they were being built. So I killed two birds with one stone. I wanted to learn that. And I also wanted to live in California. They have what they call resident engineering offices where they'd be like the Washington representative for projects all over the country. And I waited for a job to open in California, which happened to be in Palo Alto. And I jumped at it and I was lucky to get it. So I spent about two and a half years actually out in the field managing construction. And that's where I really learned a lot. I learned a lot about how buildings go together and how contractors work and how architects and engineers relate to the contractors. And it was really good. Um, but the other thing I learned was that, I, I, at least for me, with working for something like the federal government, it was either four or five years and out or spend the rest of your career there and retire there. And so I decided I wanted to get out. I started looking. I really wanted to stay in California because California was my dream. And I started looking for jobs, design jobs, or I thought I would really stay probably in the healthcare business in California. I stumbled across this ad for WED Enterprises, and I had no idea who WED Enterprises was. And I don't even think it had Disney on it anywhere, but it had this like placard and they were advertising for engineers for a big project, which meant nothing to me. But this placard was being held by a thing that looked suspiciously like Mickey Mouse. You could see the two little ears on the top <laughs> holding this thing up. Two, two little ears above the placard and two little mouse hands holding it and two little mouse feet at the bottom. And I went, aha, that must be Disney. I had heard somewhere, read somewhere that they had a design group. So they were looking for engineers, which I wasn't. This is way before the internet. This is one ads in the newspaper. And so I sent them a 
a letter and I said, you know, I'm not what you're looking for, but this is who I am and what I think I can do. And much to my surprise, they called me, flew me down and made me a job offer. Fantastic. We as visitors, when we're going to a Disney theme park, we marvel at the finished product of the attractions. You know, you think back when you're innovating, there's obviously certain bumps along the way in the journey. When you revisit the projects that you've worked on, is there one in particular you can think of that posed the biggest challenge to you? Well, in 26 or 27 years, there were a lot of big challenges. So I can't really pick one, but quickly I'll pick the biggest one in sure. one sequence for me. One obviously was Epcot, which was the project that I got assigned to. I thought I was going to stay in California, although when I talked to Disney, they said, we're going to move you to Florida. So Epcot. And why was Epcot a big challenge? One, the scope of it. It, it supposedly at the time was the largest private construction project in the country. We clearly didn't have enough time. What was new to me and challenging to me was the enormous number of changes that were happened continuously to either finish the show or improve the show, something that didn't happen at the government. And also I was involved a lot in ride installation. I'd obviously never done that before. Technology that was being sort of pushed to its limits and something that I wasn't particularly educated in. So that, that was a huge project. And frankly, I expected that, um, Disney would let me go because they let hundreds of people go after Epcot was finished, but somehow I hung on, I stayed at Walt Disney world for a little bit. And then my next big challenge was the grand Floridian where I was the project manager. I never project managed a project myself. This was a 900 room luxury hotel. I'd never done a hotel before. So that obviously was a big challenge as well. Disneyland Paris, my first foreign job, I, I was just dying to go to work in Europe and I loved it, but certainly working in foreign countries, a challenge. And then the last one, building the Disney magic and wonder again, something that I really didn't have the background before and never done it before. It was enormously challenging for a lot of reasons. So I know you asked for one, but that's four. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. And there were other ones in between that were big challenges too, but those are the four big ones. I want to jump in a little bit. We had Rachel DeSantis on a few weeks ago, actually from Universal Studios Hollywood. As you may know, her background is actually on the engineering side, your background on the architecture side. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between architects and engineers when it be, when it comes to designing these attractions? Sure. And actually, I remember, Rachel, and while it's true, I am an architect by training until I retired, I held an architect's license. But in reality, in my career, I've managed as much architecture, as much construction and managed engineers an equal amount. I've always thought that one of my strengths is I'm not particularly right brain or left brain, and I can go back and forth between the two. And also at Penn State, when I went back to teach there, I had a joint appoint appointment. Half of my appointment was in architecture and the other half was in architectural engineering. And I taught in both and I was on both faculties. And, and again, I think what they appreciated was the fact that even though I wasn't an engineer, I understood what engineers and contractors do. It's really, it's critically important that they all work together. Designing a theme park or even a, a complex Disney hotel, but certainly a theme park is really a, as complex as doing a major hospital. The only difference is hopefully theme parks aren't life and death situations, which hospitals can be. But in terms of systems, theme parks are everybody's complicated and maybe more so. 
Um, so the only way you can achieve that complexity is through integration and collaboration. And one of the things I did at Penn State was, along with a couple other professors, developed an interdisciplinary studio where we had architects, landscape architects, and then the, the four disciplines of AE at Penn State, structural, mechanical, lighting, electrical, and construction. And they all worked in design studio together. And that was radical for Penn State. Universities talk about collaboration all the time, but you'd be surprised how little collaboration there is sometimes. And I started that in my second year with a couple of other professors, and I'm happy to say it is still running. And I really believe it's important to do that. And then when I came down here to Florida, I worked with the University of Florida and helped them develop a graduate program in themed environment integration. So that's all about the idea that all these disciplines, including writers and cinema people and every, everything else need to work together. So I'm a huge believer in it. It's the only way you can do something like a theme park. Just curious though, is there sometimes friction between, you know, they are both approaching it with a different lens. Yes. Are there, are there moments of friction where between the two groups? There's lots of moments of friction and that's where the project management person comes in. And that's where that person, I won't say necessarily needs to step in, but needs to guide that process. And tension is not a bad thing. Disagreement's not a bad thing, but it needs to be channeled in a positive direction. And again, I think one of the advantages that I had was this sort of ability to think right brain, left brain. And after a number of years, having a lot of experience in, in quite a few disciplines, although I really could only call myself legally an architect helped me appreciate where people were coming from, different points of view. And some of the other project managers we had who were strictly one discipline experience, I had a harder time with that. I imagine project management is a very undervalued role in this, probably not appreciated as much. Yeah, it is. And not to get too deep into the sorted history of Disney. As you can imagine, a company like that is very large and also has very passionate people in, I'm talking about Imagineering specifically right now. There are different ways of approaching things. And on the attraction side, the project manager attempts to be the orchestrator and is responsible for things like schedule and budget. But in reality, the art directors are the ones that call the shots. It's a tough position to be in as a project manager. Thanks for the clarification there. I want to touch a little bit on the Disney Cruise Lines, which you played such an uh, instrumental role serving on the executive committee. I imagine there's so many complexities to think about when designing a cruise ship, the operations, the guest experience, all while trying to keep that Disney quote unquote magic standard. Can you share a little bit more about this part of your career? Sure. I was on the Disney Cruise Line Executive Committee, although it was actually after the Magic and Wonder were built, and we were involved in a lot of negotiations for what became the third and fourth ship, although I left before they actually officially started. But it's funny how I got involved in the business. Again, I was not exactly a cruise freak. I had sailed once before on the Big Red Boat, which Disney had a loose partnership with at one time. And it was actually a pretty crappy experience. <laughs> and I, I said, well, you know, if this is what cruising is all about. I'm really not that interested. <laughs> but as the project started and I learned more about it and it was going to be built in Europe somewhere 
and I just loved Europe. And I had come back from working on the Paris project and I kept thinking, oh man, I have to work on this project somehow. And in many ways, my later career, I was like the relief pitcher for the development company side of the business that if a project was in trouble, it was called Bob. And the cruise line, the magic was in some trouble in terms of getting it built anywhere close to schedule. So they called Bob and I got involved in it. What did you do there? Like when they call Bob, you then? Well, the executive that was in charge was my, had worked with the hotel development group in Florida and was my boss in Paris. So we knew each other very well. And he knew that I was the kind of person that could come in and take a project. In that case, it was specifically the Santa Fe hotel. And I could take a project and somehow force it across the finish line. And so in that case, it was a little bit of a delicate situation because the project manager was French. He was a, a talented young guy, but he had never worked for Disney before. And he sort of was of the school that if things weren't going well, the less said about it, the better, which isn't the case. And I basically parachuted in as his new boss. But again, I like to think that I have some cultural sensitivity and didn't want to be the big, bad American. And so we worked out a relationship and we got the project done. But more specifically to your question, and I may not have been so involved in the original discussions of the magic and wonder, but I was very involved in what became the third, fourth and fifth ships. Cruising was not necessarily a family thing. Yes, families went but the type of programs and things that were available for the children were lacking to say the least. Most cruise line had one room and they had a couple of counselors and they had board games and they'd look at videos and that was their children's program. And Disney decided that they obviously wanted to do something much more enriching and rewarding and enjoyable than that, and be able to also look at, at different age groups of children. So that for the magic and wonder was quite radical. No one else was doing that. No one else was dedicating that type of space. So that was a big change and it has a big impact on how the ship is laid out physically and also a big impact on how the ship is run. Also, Disney thought a lot about, okay, if the kids are in daycare or teenage programs or whatever, what the adults do. And they were really looking to appeal to extended families where you could have virtually somebody in diapers all the way up to someone even older than I am. And the extended family go together and they'd be together when they wanted to be together and they could be apart when they wanted to be apart and everybody have a great time. So that, that was really a radical departure in the cruise industry and had a lot to say about how the ship was laid out, how it was built, how it was managed. And the other big piece was entertainment. Disney had the most sophisticated theaters and cinemas and all that kind of thing at sea. We were virtually building Broadway quality theaters at sea that had never been done before. I think other people are doing it now, but it wasn't being done at that time. And the complexity of the entertainment systems was unlike anything the shipyard had ever seen before and and frankly posed some of the biggest challenges that we had in getting the ships done. Pardon the pun here, but uncharted waters, right? As you're trying to make everything bigger and better. And like you said, Broadway style entertainment on a cruise ship. I imagine there's a the level of creativity there, right? Where you've got a vision, you and your team have a vision of what you want to get done, but is a lot of trial and error. Like how many years did it take before those third, fourth and fifth ships were ready to take on passengers? I think 
the magic and wonder they worked on them and design for i think about three years before they went into construction and each ship took about two years the magic was a little longer more like two and a half years but it was supposed to be two years and they followed the wonder followed about a year behind the magic which is fairly typical when you're building multiple ships so it, it took you know maybe three years or so to get the initial designs done and Disney was different in that we weren't carnival where they were doing their 20th or 30th or 40th ship and they knew what they wanted and they had a formula and everything else. Disney put together a whole new company that was primarily the management side was primarily people from other cruise lines and they brought them in. But then the, the operational group that ran things like food and beverage and some other things was also a mixture of Walt Disney World people. And then, of course, the creative side wa was Imagineering, although Imagineering was not really the lead designer on the Magic and Wonder. We managed the process, but the bulk of the design work was done by people that had designed many ships before. At least the technical portion was done. So it was a very complex process. The third and fourth ship, which started several times in the early 2000s, we were about ready to go to bid, and unfortunately, 9-11 happened. In fact, myself and the president of Cruise Line were on the telephone to our broker in Paris about our next steps, and then somebody came into the president of Cruise Line's office and said, you've got to come in and look at the TV. And so, of course, we saw the horrible thing unfolding, and then we went back, and before we called the broker, the president and I looked at each other. Without saying anything, we knew that the project was dead for a while, and for a variety of reasons, they were put to sleep, let's say. We re resurrected them several times. And after about the third or fourth time, I decided that I had other things to do, which was move on to Penn State and teach. If, if the ships had gone sooner, frankly, I probably would have finished my career at, at Disney. So strange twists of fate, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, we're talking a little bit more about your international experience. When you were working on Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong, and Tokyo, how did you take into account the local culture when designing those experiences for the listener like us? We've never been there other than the language. What's different about those parks as opposed to the ones domestic to the U S well, um, a lot of mistakes were made in Paris that there were one, uh, Michael Eisner was the chairman at the time decided that, Paris was going to be one of the most beautiful parks and that Disney was going to put everything into it to make the Magic Kingdom there is extraordinary. But they really struggled with the cultural aspects. The decision was made that Disneyland was going to be Disneyland or like the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World. And that obviously things were going to be in French language and English as well as some other languages. The food was going to have to be somewhat adjusted but in the hotels, and all the hotels at that time were designed as distinctly American-themed hotels, the food offerings there were primarily American, and they were also like these huge American portions that the French can't figure out why we eat that much. And so there were a lot of there were a lot of mistakes or just misunderstandings. I think one of the one of the bigger ones too in the financial model was that Americans buy lots of t-shirts and look at me. I was at Walt Disney World, even old people like me. And I think they assumed that the French would do that as well. And the French don't wear logo anything for the most part. 
They may wear a little Lacoste alligator or crocodile or whatever it is, but they're very discreet about, you know, men and women in, in Paris don't wear Disneyland t-shirts. They don't wear anything like that. doesn't matter if it's American or not. So we just assumed that there was going to be this huge consumer spending on the on merchandise and what have you, and it never happened. Whereas Tokyo, the Japanese are entirely different. There, there's nothing more important than wearing a t-shirt or a souvenir from where you want. There's nothing more important than giving gifts to your friends and your children of where you've been. And merchandise just flies off the shelves in Tokyo, much more so than it does even at Walt Disney World. A lot of things related to food and merchandise spending and per caps and staying in the hotels. There's the one in Hong Kong is basically a one day park. So you can't expect that people are going to stay three and four days in the hotels like they do at Walt Disney World. So a very different way of thinking about that. And when they opened Disneyland Paris, it was right after the Eastern Europe opened up and these busloads of Polish and others would come. They drive for like 30 hours. They'd come to Disneyland Paris. They, they would bring all their food with them. They wouldn't spend any money in the park and then they, they wouldn't stay at a hotel and they're getting their bus and drive 30 hours back home. And it was great to have them. And it was wonderful to see Eastern Europe opening up. On the other hand, there was really no spending except an admission ticket. So, yeah fascinating to see consumer insights, culture norms across borders. I want to touch on, you know, certainly there's a lot of theme parks out there. They have characters, they have the fun, they have exhilarating rides, various attractions. I've actually been to Disney World about 10 times. I've also been on the Disney Cruise. Epcot by the Midway is one of my favorite parks. But I got to say, there's just something different compared to other parks out there. There truly, in my opinion, is a magic to Disney World or and anything that Disney seems to touch. From someone who has worked there, what is that magical feeling that people experience at Disney compared to other similar parks? Well, I'm glad you noticed that. There's a lot of other competition out there, and I'm not sure that Disney's necessarily head and shoulders above, let's say, Universal at the moment. But what are the differentiators? Attention to detail. It's all about the detail. It's all about consistent storytelling. And it's also about the guest experience. And that isn't just the architecture and the thrill rides. It's also about how they're treated by cast members and, and the whole nine yards. I personally think there's some risk that they're losing some of that. There is more focus on intellectual property, the things that they bought, the superheroes and all these other things and finding places to stuff them in the park, which may not always work all that well. And that's actually a criticism that I had of Universal before. I remember John Hench, who was one of the people that started with, he was an animator at the studio. And Walt Disney hired him or somebody that worked for Walt hired him, but he and Walt were very close. And he was one of the ones that Disney brought, Walt Disney brought over from the studio to start this wet enterprises, which became Imagineering. And he was still around when I was there. I was very lucky that there was still maybe six or eight or 10 people who actually were of the Walt Disney era 
although I only ever really got to work with two of them, and John was one of them. And he worked at Disney, too. He was 93 years old. And actually, he worked at Disney, too. He died. But at any rate, we had a situation at Epcot where the planters and the curbs were all sandblasted concrete. It was a certain color and exposed the aggregate a certain way. And we had a number of planters that were in front of the ticketing booths there. And we were just flat out of time. And we had poured them the day before and it had to take a certain number of days before you could sandblast them. And when you sandblasted them, they made a mess and everything else. And like opening was like tomorrow. And we went to John and we said to John, can we just paint them the same color? And John said, look, he said, you got to do what you got to do to get open. But he said, details is important. And most people probably wouldn't specifically say, aha, they just painted that planter. They didn't sandblast it. The Probably 99.9% of the guests and maybe even some of the Imagineers would never notice it. But he said, you know, every time you lose a detail like that, you lose something and it becomes a slippery slope. And at some point, guests will say, this just doesn't feel like Disney anymore. And they may not know exactly why, but that planter may have been the start of the slope downhill. And you got to make business decisions. You got to make scheduled decisions. You make compromises even back then. So it's, I think there is more pressure today to to deliver, frankly, a cheaper product. Not that they're not spending a lot of money. They certainly are, as does Universal and other people. I think there's more competition out there. I think there's less focus on consistent storytelling. And I think there's less focus sometimes on the guest experience. There are those who think that if you're looking at your iPhone all day and you're tapping in there to do these things in the park, that's a better guest experience. And maybe it is for a 20-year-old. I'm Unfortunately, I'm not 20 years old anymore. But as my former boss, who was responsible for the architecture and all the things that you would look at, and he said, you know, if you're looking at your iPad or your phone all day long, why are we spending all this money on architecture? Nobody's looking at it anymore. They're just looking at their phones. And it's not just Disney. The whole theme park business is evolving sometimes in better ways, sometimes in not so better ways. And I think, I, I think the theme park experience is changing. And sometimes I wonder at my age whether I'm the right critic for that or not, but I am somewhat critical of it today. Wait, so did you sandblast it? No. No. <laughs> and the last time I was up cut, it was still painted. <laughs> so, you know, did... did did one person walk up there and say, oh, I'm not going to buy a ticket. Look, they painted these planters. No, I'm sure that never happened. I, I doubt a guest ever noticed. But John Hench was absolutely right. It's a slippery slope. And where do you stop? And he basically said, I'm not going to tell you that you can't do it, but I'm also not going to tell you that you can do it. <laughs> and he planted that seed that made you think about that as a as a symbol of the of the approach and the ethic and all that. Yeah, he was a very wise man. And I think that's the thing that's missing today. He's a guy that sat next to Walt Disney. He's a guy that presented his ideas to Walt and they argued back and forth or whatever. There aren't any of those people anymore. They're all gone. They're all dead. So it's a new generation, which is not bad. 
but I think I think having that conscience on your shoulder, conscience of John Hench saying, I'm not saying you can't do it, but I'm also going to not tell you that you can do it, and know that he sat next to Walt Disney it was pretty powerful. For sure. Obviously, 27 years with Disney is super impressive. You've done a lot, as we've learned here this evening. You've seen a lot. What's one or two things, further to what you were saying before, what's one or two things that you think would surprise the average Disney park goer about Disney World in general? Well, I, I guess that um, I, I suppose people know that Disney has a lot of land at Walt Disney World, but I, I don't suppose too many people know that there's 47 square miles. So there's a lot of land that was done purposely because Walt saw what happened at, in, at Anaheim with Disneyland, where it was built in the middle of Orange Grove and there was nothing there. But they also didn't have the money to buy up all the property around it. And so all of a sudden they had all these eyesores right at the front door at Disneyland. And so Walt was bound to determine that wasn't going to happen at Walt Disney World. So they, in fact, bought about 30,000 acres of land. So I don't think too many people know that's the case. Only about a third of it is currently developed. Certainly there is more that can be developed, although a lot of it is nature preserved or wetland or whatever and cannot be developed. So I guess the sheer size of Walt Disney World might surprise people. We're going to shift a little bit here. In true Disney fairy tale fashion, we understand that you met your wife at Disney. How did Tell us that story. How did that come about? I did. One of the cool things about Disney World is they have all these intramural sports. You'd think you were almost a Penn State with all the intramural sports and they happen to have co-ed volleyball and bunch of us said they didn't have all male volleyball they just had co-ed a bunch of us said hey that'd be fun well we don't have any women and uh, one of our secretaries in the office said go over to the accounting trailer they're almost all women over there and see if you can recruit some people so i went over and because i got somehow managed to be a captain of the team and i went over to the and i really didn't know anybody over there i introduced myself and said what we were doing and we were looking for people to play volleyball and my to-be wife was one of the ones that volunteered so that's how i met her and that's our fairy tale we've been married i should remember but i don't remember <laughs> a long time we got married in the midst of epcot in, in december of 1991 we were crazy we got married at christmas time because that was the only time i could take a week off <laughs> wow there you go so Amazing. 30 what 31 32 years yeah, something like that. Excellent. Did, Congratulations. Did you, did you propose at Disney by chance? No, actually, oh, okay. it's my condo, which wasn't that far away. <laughs> but no, nothing, nothing spectacular. And there wasn't any wedding pavilion, although I, the wedding pavilion was one of my projects. And my daughter got married there about two years ago. That was pretty special. Wow. Congratulations. Before we shift to talking about Penn State, I've got one last question. As you mentioned, of course, you're retired now. However, Bob Iger, the CEO of Walt Disney, called you up today and said, hey, Bob, I need your advice. <laughs> What's one thing we should do to make Disney an even better experience? What's your response? Actually, I, I've been around Bob Iger quite a bit. We used to do presentations all the time to Michael Eisner, who was the CEO and then when Bob Iger was elevated to president, he was also at all the presentations. So I've made many presentations to Iger. I've been at dinners with him and things like that, although we're hardly friends. <laughs> He's not the kind of guy that would likely call me. I would say, and it's interesting, I had this conversation with my ex 
boss. Think about not just acquisitions, think about the roots of Disney, think about consistent storytelling, think about making sure there's a great guest experience. I, I think Bob Iger is a much better CEO than the one that was there for a couple of years before, who I don't know at all. But Bob has a lot of things on his plate, including a stock price that's not very good and a lot of debt. I don't think he's too worried about design decisions at the moment, but those are the kinds of things that if he were to call me, I would suggest that he think about. Perfect. Yeah, certainly a lot of pressure in that role, no doubt there. We're going to put you now in the Lions Den, brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride and reminisce about your time at Penn State. Remember to visit lions-pride.com to pick up all your summer apparel and gear. Bob, thinking back to your Penn State experience, right, with architecture, how did that prepare you for the early part of your career? Again, looking back to when you were working for the federal government and your professional life, how did Penn State prepare you for those early days? Going to architecture school is all about architecture studio. And that's a little bit controversial because you take about a third to a half of your credits any particular semester in, in architecture. So it, it's, a, it's very dominated by what you're doing in the studio. And the studio is, and again, this is a little controversial, but it's sort of a make or break you in a way. And some professors are known to weed you out, make your life difficult. And that's coming more and more into question today, whether that's the right thing. Architecture school can be a bit like boot camp. But at any rate, I think the I think there's a lot of downsides to that. But the upside to that is is the one thing I learned was one how to come up with an original idea, and then maybe more importantly, how to sell that idea. And that selling in architecture is obviously a lot about drawing and building models and things like that. But it's also a presenting in person, and you present over and over and over and over again and trying to sell an idea, defend your thesis, your idea. And I think that's one of the number one things that stuck with me, because, again, I can't tell you how many times I was involved in presentations to, with Michael Eisner, CEO of Disney and Iger, the president, obviously much less so in the federal government in my role. But in both places, the other thing I learned, and again, I shouldn't condone all-nighters because it's not a good thing. <laughs> and a lot of times all-nighters are self-imposed because you didn't do the amount of work that you should have done for the first eight or 10 weeks of the semester. But the competition that you have in architecture school and the fact that there is, you're never done. And I don't want to make engineering sound easy because it isn't. One of the reasons I went into architecture is because I thought I would hate engineering and I hated math. But to some extent, when you're solving a problem mathematically, it either proves itself out or it doesn't. So there's sort of, in many cases, a right or a wrong answer. Where in architecture, there's never a right or wrong answer. There's always a million answers. And so it's a matter of finding the answer that best satisfies the client, the situation, the whatever. It's an iteration over, 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 over again. I learned a lot about that in architecture school. I certainly saw a lot of that at Disney. And the other thing is I had a lot of all-nighters, even at the government. I, one of my jobs was to fly to hospitals all over the U.S., Puerto Rico, whatever, 
meet with the staff there, and they would tell me what their needs were. I'd have to come up with a kind of layout, and then in the next day or so, have the director of the hospital, the chief of staff, the head of that discipline, whatever, sign off on it. And if that meant working all night, that's what I did. And I can't tell you how many all-nighters that I spent at Disney. Many, 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 many. And I think the fact that I went through architecture school and learned that's possible and how to pace yourself was the enormous learning for me that was useful. Although I think architecture professors are often guilty of making life too difficult for the students. Very interesting perspective there. You know, you talk about the professors. You actually became one after you retired from Disney. You came back to State College and taught architecture. What were some of the highlights of being back in the classroom, certainly in a different role? Clearly, the students are the highlights. You know, by the time you get to university, I would also argue maybe in particular in a discipline like architecture, you want to be there. You don't have many students that are slackers. You don't have many students that aren't going to give it their all. Almost without exception, the students were the best part. And my, my parents went to Penn State. I actually lived some summers at Penn State when I was very young. I, A lot of the people that I graduated with, not necessarily in architecture, but people I knew from high school and met in college ended up staying in State College. So for me, it was like returning to my second hometown. And I know the first couple of years I kept pinching myself, is this real? So one, it was a, personally, it was a wonderful experience because I got back to seeing a lot of people that I, that I like a lot that I wasn't seeing very often for a lot of years. And also when all of a sudden the light goes on with a student and they're passionate and excited about, that's a really special thing. Yeah, that's great that you were able to, to come back and share so much of your wisdom as well. Toughest question of the podcast, favorite Penn State memory. Interestingly enough, it really is what drove my career in many ways, but being a study abroad student in Florence, Italy in the spring term of my fourth year, because architecture is a five-year program. So going and living in Europe, and I'd never been there before, living in Italy, it just changed my life. It really, it changed my thinking about the world. I just can't imagine how people think logically about the world and have never been outside of Philadelphia, pick a place. So it really changed my perspective on the world. It built in me the desire to do international work. It took a while to get there, but I eventually did. I'd say another related highlight was I taught four summers in Rome and two summers in Hong Kong for Penn State, where I was on the other side of the table. I was the professor, and that was equally as enjoyable. Fantastic. Bob, if you could go back and visit with yourself as an 18-year-old freshman stepping on the campus of University Park, what advice would you share? I think you need to be serious and work hard. But on the other hand, I would advise that you need to enjoy your time there too, because it's likely to be some of the best years of your life. Not to say that you won't have other great experiences in your life, but I think for many people, when they look back, college was one of the best experiences of their life. Work hard, get your degree, but also have a good time when you're there. 
and, and excellent and advice. Appreciate the you know the experience. Absolutely. As mentioned early on, we had Rachel DeSantis from Universal Studios Hollywood on a few episodes ago, and she mentioned how you would help them to form the Penn State Theme Park Engineering Group. So tell us more about your role in that, and are you still involved with that club today at all? I think it was another professor in AE came to me and said, well, there's a theme park club at Penn State. I went, oh, really? I, I don't think I knew at the time. And he said, some of the students, that they're looking for a new faculty advisor. The faculty advisor they had didn't want to do it anymore, and they asked another AE professor to do it. And he said, I don't He didn't know anything about theme parks. So he said, why don't you do it? So I went and met with the officers of the club at the time and I asked them what they were looking for. And they said, to be honest, we're kind of looking for a warm body. They said, the faculty advisor we had before never even showed up. And sometimes we need paperwork signed to go on a trip or whatever it is. And we couldn't even find them to have signed the paperwork. And if you could at least do that and anything you can tell us about the theme park world, we'd be happy. Um, one of the things that struck me a little bit at the time, and the last time I was involved was the beginning of COVID, I think, after I left Penn State. But at least when I was first involved, it was very much a roller coaster club. The group wasn't that big at the time, maybe 20, 25 people. And the last I knew, they had more like 60 people. But they were all roller coaster freaks, and I'm not. And they were about 95% engineers, and I have nothing against engineers. Obviously, the talking about bogey systems and things like that on roller coasters just is not exactly my strong suit. And so I helped facilitate a few things, and every year I would go in and talk about my experience and what have you. I did come back after I left Penn State and every year that I was up there, I would try to speak to them. And I was very impressed how the club had grown in numbers and had grown in the number of other disciplines that they have, architects, art students, English majors. It was amazing the number of people. And I used to tell them, you need to change your name. Theme Park Engineers Club is turning a lot of people off that aren't engineers. But anyway, so it was great. And I wish I had played more of a role now than hindsight, but it's good. To, at least the last I knew, the club was flourishing and doing well. And I've interfaced with the University of Florida Club since I've been down here and they're great organizations, and a lot of kids do make contacts through the, those types of organizations to get their foot in the door for a theme park career. I mentioned this when Rachel was on as well, and I think it certainly applies to you. When you take a step back, all the smiles on people's faces, all the memories made, all the dreams that have come true, you had a part in that. And he had a pretty big part in that. And I think we certainly want to recognize you for that and also say congratulations and thank you as well. Certainly. Well, well, thank you. And, and, you know, that is the one thing that I was a huge change for me. Ironically, I was never a military veteran. So maybe I joined the VA out of guilt. I'm not quite sure. But reality was the only job I was offered at the time. But I felt as though I was doing something worthwhile. I was helping to design and build healthcare facilities that hopefully would help a lot of veterans. But it's not the kind of place that you get a lot of smiles. You just don't see that. You saw a lot of fairly ill people. 
And also the facilities were never designed like a theme park. They were never particularly beautiful or what have you. But then when I went to Disney and I realized that every day I was doing something that was contributing to a lot of people smiling. And when you had a tough day at Disney, which there often were tough days because it was a very challenging place to work at times, particularly the years where I had an office that was behind Epcot or near one of the theme parks and lunchtime, just take a walk around the park and boy, everything just was wonderful again. It was a pretty neat, pretty rewarding experience. I bet. Well, we always end every podcast with, we are Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.